to Adaptivist Live, Team Titans. It's a show about people with unique perspectives on work itself, leading teams, building software, and defining, and maybe sometimes destroying, processes. The show is published between episodes of the Atlassian Ecosystem podcast, so if you're looking for news and updates around Atlassian with myself, Brenda, and Matthew, we got you next week, all right? So... I'm your host, Ryan Spilkin, and on this edition of Team Titans, I am so pleased to welcome the one and only technical consultant, Jennifer Olin. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. This is, uh, is going to be fun. It is indeed. Now, Jennifer, you, mm-hmm. you're on the show because your background and what you do currently are so remarkably different our listeners are going to get a heck of a story because where you started and where you've ended up and, and how you got there and the things that you've learned along the way are fascinating. And I don't get fascinated too often, but your story I is, noticed, yeah. well, thank you. Your story is fantastic. <laughs> well, so this is, this is where Jennifer and I really understand each other because your background mm. is in entertainment. Completely. 100%. Uh, Basically, since birth, um, my parents were both in television, and growing up, my dad was a general manager of a CBS affiliate in Pennsylvania, so we would talk about, you know, ratings, Nielsen, um, advertisement at the dinner table. That's what we talked about, and for my senior year of high school... Uh, my parents bought radio stations in upstate New York. And so we moved and I was on the air uh, cutting commercials uh, back when we had to use a razor blade Ooh. in the reel-to-reel machines. Do you remember those? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. To me, that's the real editing in the world. These gadgets and whatnot. It's cheating. We say recording into a digital computer. Exactly. <laughs> and that we would all be uh, so lost without. Um, but yeah, no, I was uh, on the radio uh, doing news, had internships uh, with local newspapers uh, where I wrote articles. Um, oddly, I wrote articles about golf, women's golf specifically. <laughs> that, is speci- um, that is oddly specific. It- yeah, it, the LPGA came to uh, Corning, New York, which is where I was living, and they needed a cub reporter. And even though, I mean, like, I can't run a block or, like, I am not athletic at all. <laughs> and it's like, so, of course, I'm off doing ladies golf. Um, but I did that for a few years. I have all the uh, newspaper clippings, and I interned writing television news at a local station, and then when it was time to go to college, it I chose, uh, I went to Fredonia for two years, SUNY Fredonia. And then I transferred to Ithaca College, which is where I uh, wanted to be the whole time. Um, but, uh, you know, recession, money, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. But I had a great time at Fredonia, ran their radio stations. And then when I got to Ithaca... I partook in their LA program. So my senior year, I went to LA for my last semester and then literally did not come back. <laughs> and, yeah. All right. So that's, that was film school for you. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was film school. Uh, but my whole life was kind of that. My dad made 
short films for the ad club that he was part of. So often we would come home and there's a camera in the house or he's, he's filming something. And in 2008, my dad and I won a silver telly for a documentary called uh, Echo Taps, The Long Grass Line. And it was about this event that happened in Corning, New York, that was bringing awareness to there's not always someone at a funeral to play taps for a veteran. So they formed this echo taps that was miles long and my dad filmed it. And I then wrote it and we went back and got all the uh, interviews we needed. It aired, we submitted it for awards and it won a silver telly in 2008. And you better believe I still have that statuette out where I can see it every day. (laughs) Right on. Um, And this, so you went from filmmaking, eventually you were a writer's assistant, right? And you worked on a pretty high profile show. Oh, of course. Um, No, I like, I had the most incredible and gifted journey out of college that it almost set me up for a false reality. Uh, I was working on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno as an intern And then for the summer, they hired me to be the writer's assistant. So that's what I was doing instead of going to college graduation. Um, I called my parents. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not walking. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be helping Jay Leno uh, say yes or no to jokes. Um, And actually during that time, I got to meet Phil Hartman from SNL. He was doing the, yeah, he was doing the Clinton um, town halls and I was working with him on a sketch and he was the nicest man in the world. Um, so after that, I had a small gig at a reality show and then I went to Seinfeld to be the writer's assistant, which basically was sitting next to Jerry Seinfeld in the writer's room with all the other writers typing every word they say on a big screen so they can see it, all your typos, everything for two years. No pressure. No, none, none, none at all. Nothing like having Jerry Seinfeld sitting three feet away from you telling you, Hey, you spelled that wrong. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Well, to take a, to take a chapter out of Mr. Seinfeld's book, what is the deal with going from film school to being a data (laughs) nerd? I don't know. Um, you know, it's so after sitcoms and television, I then got into reality television when sitcoms died a very tragic death in 2000 when uh, Survivor, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, came on the air. Uh, we all lost our jobs. I realized that reality TV was not my jam. I was good at it. I did not enjoy it. The It was a bit soulless but to be fair i was working on a lot of the dating ones which are just oh it was just like showing up every day and being like oh man humanity can't you do any better (laughs) and then by the end of the day you're like nope nope it can't (laughs) um (laughs) so i didn't want to be where i was anymore and your sitcoms were coming back but getting an agent now that you know, you're older, that was like still a thing, um, was hard. And I was just like, no, I'm done. I'm done. So I moved back to the East Coast. I was in LA for 15 years. 
and I moved back to the East Coast into Manhattan, and my family lives uh, here. So I moved back, didn't really have a plan, um, just knew I needed to be here. And I was able to get my first, uh, to dip my toe into the tech world, I became a uh, coordinator to the VP of product at Metadata. And they saw that my reality show producer capabilities completely translated into project manager roles. All I needed to do was learn, you know, their subject type. Yeah. And I did. And one of the ways I learned it was one of my jobs was to do the monthly metrics, pulling it out of JIRA, making charts, reading the widgets. And when I was introduced to JIRA, this was seven years ago, um, I was introduced to it in a really clunky way, but in a way that I now really appreciate. I sat down for my tutorial with my coworker and he just started writing JQLs and being, and and like being like, and then this is how you find this. And he would list off terms that were company, you know, nomenclature that I was like, say what now? Huh? What's a JQL? Huh? Like, so like brand new to earth. I, so I made it a personal challenge uh, to, to beat Jira. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to figure you out. I'm going <laughs> to understand what this crazy thing is. Don't you remember the rule, the, the prime rule, the house always wins. <laughs> I know. Oh, trust me. <laughs> um, so I sat with it and I did these metrics and then I started uh, finally, after I got some time under my belt, which is also critical, uh, to understanding data is having data to reference current data to legacy data and understanding what you're looking at. And when you come, when I came in fresh to their data set, I had no idea what I was looking at. I didn't know what anything meant. And I didn't know why this number being high was bad. And that number being low was great, vice versa. But after I started writing the story of these metrics and I would put the slide deck together And I started to rearrange and write notes on like, I think this will be more compelling coming after showing the higher level on the slide before, et cetera. And that's kind of really when I realized what I'm doing in my data presentation and my understanding of data very much ties into the spine of storytelling, which Pixar has an amazing story spine, which... I think can apply to anyone putting a project together, putting a data set together or reporting on existing data. Would you like to hear that story spine, Ryan? I I think you should definitely tell us about it and it will make a note. I think I should. Yeah. And we'll make a note for our listeners that will include a link to information about Mm -hmm. Pixar's story spine in the show notes. But Jennifer, tell me about the story spine. Okay. So, uh, I learned about story spine when I was also doing improv acting um, while I was doing reality show producing. That's what I did to save my soul. We used Pixar's simple story structure. It is once upon a time and every day until one day 
And because of that, and because of that, and because of that, and every day since then, and then the moral of the story. Wow. That is elegant and simple. It's perfect. Yet absolutely rock solid. It's it's the most perfect thing. I'm Yeah, I'm going to say it. I'm going to call it out right here, Ryan. Right. It is the most perfect structure that I think is tangible to any team to start with and then build out from there for their unique situations. But to really bring them through, once upon a time, what was our metric? And every day, how did we react to that metric? What data decisions did it drive? Until one day, that metric changes, either good or bad. And then because of that, what process needs to change, what implementation, you know, whatever this is applied to, see what the data-driven decisions are. And then at the end, like moral of the story, we now understand from the change in this metric, this is the moral. And either we're going to change a process, we're going to change how we do our product, whatever it is, it's a very tangible, it's a very tangible spine. It fits on a whiteboard. It's not overwhelming. And because of its simplicity, but like you said, how solid it is, it's very inclusive. You do not need to be a data scientist to do the project data. You shouldn't be. We need the, the data scientists doing the algorithms and the things that are really, really complicated. I cannot do any of that. I can do project metrics because I really try to keep them simple yet effective and Every metric should drive a decision. If you have a metric that just sits there and everyone's like, oh, that's nice to have, you don't need it. That's a waste of your time. And that's a waste of your user's time if you're making them input that into the data set. Well, let's let's go a little deeper on how we can make the data accessible and actionable for everybody. Mm. Because it seems oh. like when you start to talk about numbers and data, you will visually observe some people's eyes gloss over or them get oh. visibly frustrated because there's something holding them back. So what are yep. some ways that we can take this spine idea mm -hmm. and make it a broader appeal for data? Oh man, that is, that is the, a great question. Oh, thanks. I know you only ask great questions. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not shocked, but I was glad I'm sitting down. Um. <laughs> we can sell you the seat, but you'll just need the edge. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I know for me too, one of the reasons I went into entertainment, yeah, I was raised with it, but I wasn't good at math or at least I thought, um, turns out retrospective, I wasn't good with uh, the learning styles that my teachers had did not translate for me. Um, I don't under, I don't just memorize stuff to memorize stuff. I always need context and often there's not context in math. It's just, and now let's look at why X squared equals B12. And you're like, I, where did you even get B from? I don't know what's going on. So there's a lot of um, stories that people have told themselves when they were kids of I'm not good at fill in the blank. And I think for many of us, especially if we didn't go to business school, we didn't go to, into finance, we have, or at least I know I did, a, oh my gosh, I can't, I'll never understand that. I couldn't possibly. Oh no, I did so bad in geometry and trig. You should, oh boy, I can't do that. 
And it's, it's hopefully, I think the spine, since there are no numbers or shapes or algorithms or anything in it, should hopefully be able to give a different point of view on how to view it. You could even tell, um, let's see, how do I want to say that? You could talk through an entire data set using that spine without saying an actual number. And that might be a really good way to get people used to talking about data in that format. And then you can start to pepper in like, oh, and so this is what happened in uh, April. This is the metric we had in April. What, how are we going to use this to decide what we do in May? And then walk the team through it. And hopefully there's enough curiosity in the employees to go learn and on their own. Um, it does take some of that. You do have to go read some books um, of which I have a thousand. My favorite is Storytelling with Data. It's a fantastic book. I pick it up all the time when I am like, when I feel stuck. Um, there's so many books. There's Data Story. There's, uh, I, can, we, I can give you more links um, for the show notes if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. We we would definitely want to share links to the books in show notes. Yeah. The spine can be used to normalize the task of data collection. And and, and re, redistribution, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So where do the roadblocks pop up to people mm -hmm. effectively communicating about their data? Yeah. Um, a lot of times it's the person who needs the report doesn't generate it and is incredibly vague with what they need. Um, it's requirements. What are the requirements for a complete story of whatever they need the report on? And, you know, it's, we all sit in those meetings. There's so many memes of like, and then at the end of the day, we're on a parallel path to go back to square one and we're going to tie it back to the business and see you tomorrow. <laughs> and it's like, what did you just say? Can't you just say goodbye? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't need a parallel path to just be like, see you at the elevator. Like, stop talking in that, in, 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 in that jargon to sound like we're doing business. I, I guarantee you the person who's putting that report together wants to be told, hey, I need to know how many we sold of widget A, who, what states bought widget A, and then could you compare it to how we did a year ago for widget A, but look at the same states? That's what they want to hear. They want to know, what am I comparing this to? What, is, what are you trying to get out of this report so that it's not just a chart? So I think leaders have a responsibility to help their teams understand the data set so that they can report on it by giving them the full context of why they need the report. What is this report going to solve? What is it? Why are we even creating it? If it's a new report, why do we need it? Wh who's going to look at it? What are we hoping to get out of this report now, three months from now, six months from now? 
those sorts of conversations, I think, can really help bring the entire team together to work on improve, not only improving the data set, but publishing the data set with more consistency and understanding. Okay. And so once a person who is tasked with creating a report is able to whittle yeah. down or, or to whittle out from the, the, uh, from the request or what they actually need, what, is, what are some ways that they can ensure that the data that they deliver is easy to parse and understand? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's also, that's an interesting question. Uh, also a good question because that's what you asked. <laughs> um, quite often it feels like, especially in JIRA, the data set starts as one thing when JIRA was implemented and then it is grown as it should. However, there's still weird legacy data occupying fields that are now used in a different way. So as a team, I would say it's very important for them to have a feedback loop with their managers or whomever. Um, I don't want to put that on anybody. Like To have a feedback loop with whoever is asking for the report of this data is what we need to answer these reports. This data we never use, this, this field, no one knows what it is, and be really transparent about saying, I don't know what that is. And teams having the permission to say, I don't know what that is. Because that too, when no one wants to admit, because we're all, we all have imposter syndrome all the time, you know, you've been tasked to do something. You're like, I don't, but I don't know how or what it, you need the freedom to be able to be, be like, no, I, I need some more clarification. And this data field doesn't tell you what you think it means. So one of the ways that I have learned to compensate mm -hmm. for this, and, and I'm wondering what your thought is, is, yeah. is to, to explore the person who is requiring the data, explore their preferences for mm -hmm. actually visualizing it. Do they want to see yes. a bunch of numbers or do they want to see some shapes? But there are some problems yeah. with this. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, so to use a recent example of a chart I was looking at, um, so I live in New Jersey right now and I was looking through the breakdown of counties and what the COVID count is for confirmed cases by county and then by city within the county. And I was scrolling through because that, let's be honest, that's how we read and consume everything is we scroll. So at a glance is very important for when you're publishing data in large quantities. And I noticed that for my county, Hudson County, Jersey City, had over 4,000 cases. And I saw the size of the dot and the color of it. And then I kept scrolling and I saw another county and it had the same size dot and the same color. And without clicking on it, I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize they had 4,000 as well. That's awful. I thought Jersey City had the most. And then I clicked on the dot and it was 500. Hmm. That's a fairly significant difference. It is. But I saw where in the publishing of it, that they were not making it 
for scrolling. They didn't think about their audience scrolling through and consuming the size of the dots as numbers. So because I lived in Hudson County, the value for that dot was 4,000, 4,000 plus. Mm -hmm. For anyone else who may have started in a different county and saw their big dot and it was 400 and then they scrolled up to Hudson, they might be like, oh, I thought Jersey City had a lot. According to that dot, it's 400. You know, it's so it's it's the assumptions and it's really idiot proofing and assumption proofing the publishing. It, It almost seems like a UX task. Yes. Oh, it absolutely is. Which brings up another a hardship for people who are putting data reports together. They, they we don't have degrees in that either. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, so it's like you you see everyone has their own style, the way they make a chart and a graph, and they all tell a different story with the same data set because of the way we all interpret and communicate. That has certainly been uh, something I have found challenging during the COVID-19 pandemic is yeah. is standard, like the reading different charts can lead you to a lot of different conclusions. And yes. when charts axes are based in different scales, then things start to get mm-hmm. really confusing. Um, yes. But if you take the time. Oh, I was going to say one of the books I'm reading is How Charts Lie. <laughs> and it's it's brilliant. Yeah. It's a brilliant read. I can't do any of the content justice right here, right now. But it is all about what we've been talking about. How the same data set can be reported in two different graphics. And the consumer of that data will walk away with two very different stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know... The, we we often on the Atlassian ecosystem podcast make jokes about our viewers at home who can't see us. So right. for our viewers at home who can't see us, let's yes. let's shift the analogy to something that we can sort of describe in uh, audio terms. Now you sent me uh, in preparation of today's chat. You sent me mm-hmm. a fantastic idea, and that and this idea is one I want to share, and I want to let you you go in on a little bit. But data being the heartbeat of a project. Now, there are a lot of visual elements to a heartbeat, but everyone is pretty, I assume that everyone is pretty familiar (laughs) with what a heartbeat looks like or or sounds like or is. So can you tell people (laughs) in reality television? (laughs) Oh, snap. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Laying it down. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to send that Mark Burnett guy some aloe. Um, So. Could you kind of go in and tell us about how data represents that heartbeat and how that can guide um, report assemblers and ingesters about the importance of the information itself? Absolutely. So the data, the project is the skeleton. The data is the cardiovascular, it is the heart. It pumps the blood to make all the muscles move. It makes the project move. When you have a problem with the heart, the skeleton doesn't work. And that is the analogy that I can come up with. It's a heartbeat is a vital sign. Your pulse is connected to your heart. That is a vital sign. Those vital signs need to be checked 
and healthy for your skeleton to be healthy. When you start a project, you have to plot your data points first. Otherwise, you you really don't know what your project is. What is your end goal? It would be like buying a couch, but not measuring the space first that it fits into. And then you just have like a huge sectional in your studio apartment. You're like, where do I put this? This is garbage. This is now useless to me. Even though it's a couch and it's useful, it's it's useless right now because I didn't consider the data points of studio apartment. So shouldn't have bought a couch in the first place. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And then the other thing that I've noticed is that reporting tends to be what people think about last. Um, And I always see the struggle when that comes last because that's when they realize the gaps that their project that they may have thought was complete has and how cool to put the data together first so you can help eliminate those gaps and track the data as it goes together so you can find new ones before you need to be project complete. All right. So the big points I'm taking away, let me make sure I'm hearing you correct, mm-hmm. right? First oh, of all, sure. mm-hmm. know where you're going or or at least know what yep. you're what th- this ties back into OKRs. Know yes. what you want the outcomes to be so that mm-hmm. you can so that you can at least have a flag planted towards those outcomes, right? Yep. Um, exactly. Communicate, ask for ask for clarification when it comes to data requirements. Mm-hmm. Or, yes. And this this goes for both the ingester of the data and the collator of the data. Mm-hmm. All right. And be be mindful that you're using clear, concise language. Yep. And just keep it simple. It just because it's data, it doesn't need to be difficult. It you know, you can have a data point that is just a yes or no. And that is really powerful. So Ryan, one thing that I like to start projects off by saying to teams is, and I didn't come up with this. I'm this, this is attributed to someone else. The quote is a goal without a plan is a wish. You can write all the things you want down with the checkbox next to it saying, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. Well, guess what? Put on there. I want a pony and to win the lottery because I don't have plans for those either. fantastic yeah i often will start meetings with that phrase when possible especially at the beginning of a project it really helps bring teams together to understand we have one big goal which is this project now what are all the little goals the micro goals that we do in our sprints and talk about in stand-up every day how do those relate to the larger goal and do we have a plan for it is anyone saying, oh, and then we'll have that due next week? And everyone's like, I didn't know that was a thing. And it's due next week. Who's doing that work? <laughs> oh. Hey, like, talk about it. Make sure there's a plan. Never assume there's a plan. When you assume, what's, whatever the rest of that is, it's not nice. <laughs> it's like it makes an ass out of you and me something like that i don't know <laughs> something um, like that <laughs> something like that uh whatever <sighs> that's not my strong suit um but never assume never assume you'll always be wrong 
I think that my wife and children would back you up on that assertion 100%. Oh, I'm texting with her right now. Is that wrong? <laughs> that was wrong. It's wrong, right? Uh, I crossed the line. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Well, Jennifer, from from the studios in LA to the world of big data, your story is fascinating mm-hmm. and your approach is so valuable. I'm so oh, grateful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time for joining me today. Oh, this was so fun. If you want to talk more about data, you know where I'm at. <laughs> and that's it for this edition of Team Titans. Feel free to like and share this podcast wherever fine podcasts are like and shared and connect with us on social at Adaptivist. Thanks, everyone.